Our Father, the psalmist said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I shall live. We are thankful that when we come into your presence and when we address you, uh, you are never distracted. We, uh, many of us in here are fathers, and so many times there's so many things in our minds and we're dealing with so many different things, and one of our kids will come up to us and try to get our attention, and we're, we listen, but we're only half listening. It's just, uh, it's not what we want to do. Sometimes it's where we are. And when we realize it, we correct it. But that's um, never true with you. We have your full and complete and undivided attention. Um, we, can, we can tell you what is going on in our lives. And you hear us. You comprehend. You listen. Um, the amazing thing is, is that you give us your undivided attention even when you know all about it before we even tell you. Sometimes I know I get short with my wife because she starts to tell me something in great detail and I already know about it. And I don't, I, I don't want to listen. I don't want to give her my undivided attention. I, I want to cut her off because I think I know everything she's going to say to me. And most of the time I don't know. I might know some, but I don't know all. You know it all. And you still give us your undivided attention. You still pay attention to what's on our hearts. Uh, you know our hearts. You read our hearts. You understand the pressures. You understand the frustrations. You understand the anger. Half the time when we're angry, we don't even know why we're angry. It's usually something else that occurred, but this happened and it set us off. You get us, you understand us. And when we come to you, Lord, oftentimes, um, well, sometimes it's hard for us to pray because we, we feel like we don't have all the right words or we may not say what needs to be said correctly, but that's not a big deal to you because... Um, Sometimes our, our, our prayers are kind of confused and they're not real clear, but because you're God, you can make sense of the most confused prayer because you read hearts. You know the thoughts and intention of the heart. It's because you're our Father and you're a good Father. Because uh, Christ has done a work in our hearts and forgiven us of our sins and we are now following him. He's not only our savior, but he is our shepherd. We, we fall short continually, but there is now, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We sin, and it's important that we confess our sins. As we confess our sins, you cleanse us from all sin. Our... Uh, Our sins which we regret and keep remembering, you're, you're such an amazing Father that you not only forgive our sin, but you forget our sin.
No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 57, 9, this I know that God is for me. We so often think you're against us. But because of what Christ has done on our behalf and because we've been adopted into your family, you're for us. You're for us. You get us. You read us. There are guys in here with tremendous pressures tonight. I pray that the, uh, the scripture tonight would help relieve that stress. There are guys here with great fears. They're facing some uh, major issues. Not, they're in perhaps a major league transition and not sure how they're going to handle it, not sure what's on the other end. Give them confidence that you're already there with a solution for them. You haven't forgotten about them. You've got a plan. That next chapter you've already written. It's as clearly marked as the ones they've already walked through. We cast all of our care on you, Lord, because you care for us. Help us to live in light of the privileges we have as sons of God through Christ our Lord, who saves us, who sustains us, who leads us, and who is for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So tonight, take your Bibles if you would, as we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, there is a new section that begins in chapter 8, beginning with verse 2. Chapter 8, verse 1, is, um, quite frankly, verse 1 of chapter 8 is a hinge. Uh, It is a hinge between what has just been talked about in Ecclesiastes 7, and it uh, transitions very nicely right into Ecclesiastes 8. 8, 8.1 says, Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? Now, Solomon was a king. We believe him to be the author. He calls himself Koheleth. But for reasons I won't go into right now that we talked about earlier, it appears, at least to me, it's very clear. He's he's the one writing this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Also wrote Song of Solomon. Also write Proverbs. Solomon was a king. Uh, and he is about to talk about kings, and he's about to talk about kings and governments and how it is that we live under uh, kings and governments. Uh, he has talked in the previous chapter uh, about the, the importance of wisdom and how rare it is to find a man who really genuinely has wisdom. Um, he made the statement that it is very, very difficult uh, out, out of a 1,000 men, uh, you, you might find one who has wisdom, wisdom that comes from God, wisdom that comes from fearing the Lord. Uh, we're going to see again tonight this concept of fearing God. Uh, the, the fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fourteen times in Proverbs, it talks about the benefits that accrue to a man who fears the Lord. Uh, why would we fear the Lord? 
if you think of Isaiah chapter 6, uh, Isaiah said, in the, year, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up. And his glory filled, and the glory of his robe filled the, t- filled the temple. Uh, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, which with two they flew, with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet. And they said to one another, tolerant, tolerant, tolerant is the Lord God Almighty. That's actually not what they said. G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. There's a good kind of tolerance. There's a legitimate kind of tolerance. But there's also an illegitimate kind, which is rampant in our culture. Those who have been screaming the most for tolerance for the last 20 years now have some judicial weight behind them. And they're not showing much tolerance to those that have different convictions. They will search out you if you're a Christian baker. They will search you out if you're a Christian florist. Not all of them, but some. You know this and I know it. Isaiah saw the Lord, and he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness is absolute moral purity. Why is it that whenever anyone gets in the presence of God, they fall on their face? It's because of his holiness. It's absolute moral purity. And what Isaiah went on and said, I am a man, when you're in the, whole, in the presence of Almighty God, when you're that near to Almighty God, you realize, because of his holiness, you realize your sin. And Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. And we are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God, the holy God, is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, Those who fear the Lord understand that in his holiness and in his goodness and in his mercy, he sent Christ to this world. He who knew no sin became sin. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross as a substitute for us. He took our sins upon him, and he paid for them in full. 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to over 500 at one time. Lastly, Paul says he appeared to me. Um, that's the gospel. The holy God came and took sin, became the sin bearer, and took our sin upon him. Men who fear the Lord live in dependence upon him. Men who fear the Lord are in awe of him. They're, they're, not, in, not, they're not in terror that he's going to strike them because he's good because of what he's done in Christ. But they are in awe, and there is a reverence, and there is a respect. Uh, there, there is a family, there is, there is a family relationship, because Romans 8 tells us we've been adopted. There, 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 should, be, there should be a legitimate fear of a father that kids have. Not fear of being beaten, not fear of being assaulted when he comes in drunk at night, nothing like that. 
just a fear, just a respect. You want to please him. Uh, you want to obey him, because if you don't, there'll be some consequences, because he loves you. You see? Okay. So that's the fear of the Lord. Along with the fear of the Lord, when you have the fear of the Lord, you want to get to know him. Yeah, you, you, want, to, you want to be with him. Uh, you're not alone anymore. He's with you. And he's given you his word. And now he shows you how to navigate life. You don't have to try and do it by yourself anymore. Uh, and the more you get to know him, and the more you get to know his word, the more wisdom you're going to have, the more knowledge that you're going to have. Uh, yeah. Isn't that good? So let's go to 8.1. Who was like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? And he's talking about a man who has the fear of the Lord, who has a godly wisdom. Watch this. A man's wisdom, now watch this, illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Boy, what an interesting choice of words. You know what he's talking about here? A man, a man who knows the Lord and a man who fears the Lord has a wisdom. And when he walks into a situation, because of what God's done in his heart and what God's done in his life and because of what God is teaching him, this man actually brings light into situations. He brings light into darkness. Where there's confusion, he brings clarity. Where there's lawlessness, he brings truth. Where there's condemnation, he brings, brings grace. He, a wise man is rare. Yes, he is. Why? Because in this dark world, he walks in and provides wisdom. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in Daniel chapter 2. And Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king on the face of the earth. You talk about being feared. You, you talk about a kingdom that's spread all over the world. You talk about an administrator. You talk, he, 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 was a, he was not a godly man, but he was a remarkably gifted man. He has this dream. And the way they played the game back then is that you'd have a dream and then you had these, these uh, soothsayers and satraps and Ivy League guys, you know, MBA guys, Kennedy School of Government guys, you know, the guys, you know. And you'd hire them and you'd tell them the dream and then they'd get together and they'd talk and they'd, you know, come up with a position paper and they'd all agree, yeah, this is what it means. They might take some polls. I don't know what they did, but they would come up and they say, here's, here's what your dream means, king. Well, he knew how it was played. But in Daniel 2, he was so scared by what he saw, he said, listen, I'm not messing around with you guys. Uh, if you're so stinking smart, you tell me what I dreamt. And he said, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, king. There's not a man on the earth who can do that. Actually, there was a man on the earth, about a 16-year-old kid named Daniel who knew the Lord, along with his three friends. And you know the rest of the story? They asked the Lord, show us what he dreamt. The Lord showed him, and he went in and said, here's what you dreamt. And where there was darkness, where there was fear, where there was confusion, light, which light came in, and there was clarity. Okay. 
Interesting uh, that I would mention Daniel because really Daniel is uh, a model of what's going to be talked about in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes 8 is about government. And let me make two statements before I go into Ecclesiastes 8. Because we, we see these truths in Scripture. The first statement would be this. And see, at first, at first take, you're not going to swallow this, but you've got to think about it a little bit. First, first principle I'd give you, first, yeah, unjust government is better than no government. Unjust government is better than no government. When I was in college, on two different occasions, I found myself caught in two different riots on a college campus. Uh, the one that always comes to my mind, I was coming out of a building up on the hill to the west, and there had been a rally down on the quad, and some, uh, some agitators, quite frankly, came over from Berkeley. And, you know, that thing was going for a while. And I went into the building, I don't know what I was doing, I come out, and here is a mob running into the classrooms and pulling out professors and beating them up and knocking students around and busting windows. And I remember walking out, and I saw them, and at the same time I saw them, because it was absolutely out of control. And that was a small college I went to, and they usually had one campus police officer. That was it. And I, I, I didn't see him. I didn't know where he was. Uh, he could have been probably, he was probably, usually he was patrolling the parking lot writing tickets. Probably didn't even know what was going on. It was out of control. And I saw the mob, and as I saw the mob, I have to tell you, at the same time, I felt a spirit of demonic oppression like I've never felt in my life. It was a blanket. It was absolute anarchy. Anarchy. And then it happened another time on another campus. And I remember it was out of control until the tax squad showed up. And then suddenly there was government. And a lot of people were glad to see him. You see? Because bad stuff was happening. Unjust government is better, not that the tax squad was unjust. I want to say that because what I saw, they weren't unjust. They handled it very well. Their control was amazing. Unjust government is better than no government. And isn't it interesting that in the history of Christianity, most of the time Christians live under unjust governments. We're the exception. Most of the time Christians live under governments that are against them and not for them. That has not been our experience. It is rapidly becoming our experience. Second principle really goes along as the flip side of the first. Tyranny is better than anarchy. Nobody likes tyranny. But if you've ever seen unbridled anarchy, tyranny's better. At least there's some, at least there's some control. At least there's some evil is checked. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, except that... Um, 
you got to have government. Now, as we go into Ecclesiastes 8, I, I see two broad um, I see two broad subjects here. The first one is in Ecclesiastes 8, 2 through 6, and this principle is, the first two that I just gave you were kind of observations. This is the outline, and this is the guts of Ecclesiastes 8. So the first principle out of Ecclesiastes 8, 2 through 6 is this. God ordains human leaders and governments. God ordains human leaders and governments. The second major section is Ecclesiastes 8, 7 to 17. God controls and will judge all human leaders and governments. God controls and will judge all human leaders and governments. We'll get into that down at verse 7 down to 17. Uh, this section, Ecclesiastes 8, verses 2 through 6, actually is a complement to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7 on government. They, they really say the same thing. Let's start with Romans 13. So flip over to Romans with me. Government's on our mind a lot right now. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the government, about the administration we've been under. There's a whole lot of discussion about the next administration that's going to come into power, as there well should be. Romans chapter 13. Paul gives some instructions in regard to government. And remember now, Paul's writing this of, you, you, have, uh, you have Caesar, you have Nero, you have these great men, these great champions of Christianity <laughs> that are in charge. No, not great champions, great enemies of Christianity. And there's great persecution. And know what Paul says. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Even if they're bad, even if they're evil. For there is no authority except from God. They couldn't be an authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. This is the authorities that you like, and this would be the authorities that you don't like. These would be the authorities that you loathe. They've been established by God. Two, whoever, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. Things are out of control in the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's anarchy. You ever read the last chapter of Judges? A man took a woman. She was horrifically gang raped. And she was cut up into 12 pieces and sent to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what you call anarchy. 
That's what happens when every man does what is right in his own eyes. Now, we're watching anarchy breaking out here and there. Are we not? Uh-huh. We sure are. And we're watching lawlessness. And we've been watching lawlessness for quite a while. We've got lawlessness in the highest positions of this nation. Absolute, total lawlessness and disrespect for law. And they've been put there by God. Four, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Because of this, you also pay taxes. Don't cheat on your taxes, pay them. God, God, God knows what you're doing. He's your banker. He's, he's aware of, just pay him. He likes that. And he'll honor you for doing it. Uh, because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting them same, this, themselves to this very thing. So render all to what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now go back to Ecclesiastes 8. And let's read verses 2 down through 6. I say, keep, in command, uh, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Now remember, in the Old Testament, they had kings, and kings had absolute authority, total authority. There weren't, uh, they, they didn't have... Uh, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. The king was it. All right? Keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Uh, th th there was an oath given. There, there's always been an oath of citizenship. I was reading Ray Steadman. His, he, he did a series on Ecclesiastes back in the 60s. And they published it. It was so good. Um, Ray says this about verse 2. You should obey, he says in verse 2, because you're a citizen of that government. This is what is meant by because you took an oath before God. Every citizen of the United States has taken in some form or another an oath of allegiance to support the government of the United States. If you're a naturalized citizen, you firmly took this oath when you became a citizen. If you were a natural-born citizen, and as most of us are, you restated that oath whenever you said the Pledge of Allegiance. This was back in the 60s. Things were nuts in the 60s. They're absolutely insane now. Just on the issue of citizenship. Are they not? Because you see, Proverbs 11 says, it's not Proverbs 11, it's Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, I'll tell you what the righteous can do. Don't you become like the evil. You be a good citizen. Um, we're just continuing to watch the foundations being destroyed. Keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. To leave who? The king. Uh, kings had absolute authority. If you remember when there was a crisis, they were going to kill all the Jews in the book of Esther. And Mordecai 
had told Esther, don't reveal that you're a Jewess, and she didn't. But then when uh, wicked Haman was going to kill all the Jews, uh, it was a crisis. And Mordecai talked to her and said, listen, if you think you're going to escape, you're wrong. They'll come after you too. You, you, basically, you have to go in and talk to the king. But you see, the problem was for her to go in and talk to the king without being summoned could cost her her life. You didn't do that. You just didn't walk in on a king. You didn't walk in on a king, and you didn't walk out on a king because they had absolute power of life and death. And she really, she prayed and she fasted, and she said, I'm going to go in and talk to him even though I'm not summoned. And she appeared, and he summoned her. But she said, I'm going to do it even if it costs me my life, if my life. If I perish, I perish. That's where that comes from. You see? So, do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will, he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? You, 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 you don't do that to a king. Not back then, because kings had absolute power. They had absolute control. Why was it that David sinned with Bathsheba and for a year covered it up, lived with it, although it had to be known in the inner circle. It had to be known, and for a year, nobody said a word because he was the king. And finally, it was Nathan who walked in, told him a story, and said, you're the man. Because David had power of life and death. Now, David was a godly man, but, he, but he, the wheels came off for a while, you see. You think about a king who's not a godly man, who's just all about himself and his own desires and makes his own rules and thinks he's, he thinks he's above the law. Okay? Let's go back to... Uh, now, now we're going to get to verse 5. Um, and see, really, we're getting a taste of this now, aren't we? No man's above the law until recently. And now, anybody, it seems like we got a situation going on in this country where the, the checks and balances, they're all intimidated. A few of them will stand up and say something. But they just, I mean, what's going on here? This is new for us. Um, one of the reasons we're concerned is because it's picking up steam. And we kind of get a sense of where this thing might be going. And we may be going there. It, it may get worse than it is right now. And if so, you really, you really want to get this Ecclesiastes 8 stuff down. You really want to get Romans 13 down on how to handle yourself. And you really want to get Romans, uh, Ecclesiastes 8, 5, and 6 down. Because you see... This is the secret, what we're going to read in 5 and 6. This is the secret of how to be a Daniel under an ungodly king. This is the secret of how to be a Nehemiah under a foreign king. This is, this is the, the secret. Uh, this is the secret to being as the Old Testament prophets were, under kings that would abandon the truth of God. Uh, this is the secret to being a Mordecai under a foreign king. Watch what he says, verse 5. He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, of course. 
Yeah, you're sure. You know, that's okay. I, I'll, I'll go along with that. For a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. Now watch this. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, the New American Standard says, or every desire. There is a proper time and procedure for every desire. What would be the desire of the godly man? To see the kingdom of God furthered and to see evil diminished. Okay? There's a proper time and procedure for every desire, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. When you live under an unjust government and an unjust king and unjust authority, you need the wisdom of God. You need the wisdom of God to know when to speak and you know when to be silent. Ecclesiastes 3 talks about there is a time for and a time for. There's a time for and a time for. And the wise man knows what's appropriate at the given time. Uh, you, in order to survive in situations like this, you can't just fly off the handle. Uh, you got to hold down your frustration. And you got to think biblically. And you've got to seek Almighty God first. You, you just can't let your passion run away with you. You've got to be grounded and you've got to stand firm. Are, are you fish, uh, facing hostility in the workplace? Before you ever go to work, you better get up and open that Bible and ask God for wisdom. And ask him to give you something you can hold on to that day. This is where we are. He who has a wide heart, he who has a wise heart knows that this is a man who would fear the Lord. He who has a wise heart knows the proper time and the proper procedure. Proverbs says this. Proverbs says, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. One more time. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. You can say the right thing at the wrong time. What you need is the wisdom of God to say the right thing at the right time. That's how you survive in a hostile environment. That's how you survive with a hostile boss. That's how you survive in a hostile government with hostile leaders. You need the mind of Christ. You need discretion. You need discernment. That's all part of wisdom that comes from God. By the way, James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. If you ask God for this kind of wisdom, he promises to give it to you. Promises. This is how you navigate a minefield, the kind of minefield we're living in. This is how, this is how Daniel made it. When, when the king gave that order that if you guys don't interpret the dream, I'm going to kill you, well, that included him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names. It included them. So he discreetly inquired, tell me, what is the concern of the king? He went to the right person, didn't go to this guy or this guy, he went to this guy. 
because there'd been some kind of relationship built. What can you tell me about this? He moved with wisdom. Sometimes, sometimes um, you're put in a situation and you just got to take a stand. Sometimes you don't have any choice. So later, that same king, he makes this statue, and if you don't bow down and worship, you're going to go in the furnace. And so the, the, three, the three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, everyone bows and they stand up. Young guys. And he was enraged. Listen, you guys don't bow down. I'm going to throw you in that furnace, and I've just made it seven times hotter. And by the way, the guys that took him up to the furnace, they were killed. So you guys either bow or you're going in the furnace. And they said, oh, king, we don't even need to give you an answer on this. I mean, this is a no-brainer, man. Uh, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver, we will not bow down. Now, see, you've got to make up your mind before that ever happens, what you're going to do. See, we obey the laws. Christians are obedient because the, the, those, those people in positions have been put in those positions by Almighty God. We obey the law, but when the law tells us to disobey the law of God, we disobey the civil authorities. And we take the consequences, and we may take the heat, literally. We obey. We're good citizens. We pray for the welfare of the city. But when they tell us, do not preach anymore in the name of Jesus, as they told the apostles in the book of Acts, the response was, you determine whether or not we should obey you or God. We're obeying God. Now, you've got to shift. Aren't you enjoying this? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, 30 years ago, we wouldn't have had this discussion. There was freedom. There was liberty. Everybody on both sides of the aisle was for it and fought for it. I remember when I was in college, there was a very popular quote that was, I mean, you hear it all the time in classrooms all the time uh, from Voltaire. And it went something like this. I may agree, I may disagree with your opinion with everything within me, but I will fight for your right to express your opinion with everything within me. I haven't heard that in a long time. That's gone. Because, you see, they're not interested in any position except their own. That's where we are. Okay. Now, in verse 7, so, so to, to summarize what's in the first section, 2 through 6, God ordains human leaders and governments. Yes, he does. Now, let's go to verse 7, down to 17. Here's the next major section. God controls and will judge all human leaders and governments. 
Um, Jesus is the king of kings. They are high. He is most high. You can't ever forget that. All right? And you got to shift now from human government in verses 2 through 6 to the one who is superior, who has ordained, who oversees, who sustains, who raises up, who, who tears down leaders and administrations according to his purpose for the ages, and that's the sovereign God who controls all things. Okay? Now watch, watch in 7. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him what will happen? See, a king may have authority, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. No, no human knows what's going to happen. God knows what's going to happen. Why? Because God is God and he has a plan. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He has set this thing in motion. You can't ever forget this. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, you see, the point in verse 7 is, no man knows what's going to happen. God knows what's going to happen. He's written it. And it is exact in its own time. In verse 8, we find out that human leaders and human governments have limited power. Look at verse 8. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind. Now, there's a good case to make here that that word could be translated spirit. The word wind could be translated spirit. It can go both ways. No, uh, no man has authority to restrain the spirit within, within the spirit. A man has a spirit. Um, they locked up Solzhenitsyn in the gulag in Siberia. And while he was there, I mean, he was just a typical, you know, um, just a guy living for himself. He didn't like the tyranny, but uh, he really wasn't in submission to anybody. And then he saw a guard beat this man for something that was just a minute thing and and kept beating him, and finally said, if you don't stand, I'm going to kill you, and took him up before the firing squad, and a Christian man said, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me take his place. And this Christian man, um, a, a priest of the Russian Orthodox Church who was in there, said, my friend, you step aside, and he took his place, and they shot him and killed him. And Solzhenitsyn couldn't believe it. He'd never seen anything like that in his life. He thought, is that Christianity? And he found Christ as a result of that. And he would lay in the filth of that gulag, the, the filth, the stench, the lice, and he turned over on that filthy cot, closed his eyes, and he said, thank you, God, for prison. Blessed prison. Blessed prison. But you say he was, uh, he was enslaved. Now his spirit was, and his spirit had just been set free. He'd just been born again. See, he, his body was confined, his spirit wasn't. Uh, no man has authority to restrain your spirit. To, to, to do, you can't control, you can't do that. And the next point makes the same thing. And there, uh, 
no man has authority to restrain the spirit with the spirit or has authority over the day of death. You say, oh, kings have authority. They can sentence you to death and all of that. Yeah, but really, see, they really can't. Because the one who, the one who determines the moment of death is God. It is appointed for a man once to die. You see. Why is it some of you guys have been on the battlefield? We may have some guys in here. You were on a battlefield, and your buddies were killed, and you were spared. Why? Well, because before you're ever born, God determines the number of days of your life, and it is fixed, and, it, and, and no human, no human. And then it goes on and says, can change that. And then it goes on and says, and there is no discharge, discharge in the time of war. In war, nations uh, conscript. In wars, there, there is a draft. Um, I, was, I was reading Ray Stedman, and he was talking about this verse, and Ray was talking about it as a young man when World War II broke out. When World War II broke out, he was working on the railroad. He'd just come to know Christ. He'd been raised in Montana. His father had left at an early age. He was, Ray was just a Montana cowboy and got a job on the railroad as a kid, making pretty good money. World War II breaks out, and he had a deferment because the railroads are part of the national offense, so he was deferred. And he's working the railroads, and he's, and he's found the Lord, and he starts teaching some Bible studies, and people are responding, and he's enjoying that. And all, and, but he had a sense, you know? He said his friends were being drafted. I mean, back then, most guys, they just went and signed up. But he had this ministry, but as time went by, and it wasn't too much time, he felt like he ought to go join, so he did. And he thought, man, I don't know if I'm making the right move. Now, he's just a young guy. I don't know if I'm making the right move. I mean, am I going to go out there and get killed? I mean, I... But, but, you see, his life wasn't in the hands of the government. His life was in the hands of God. So he winds up being, he doesn't, he doesn't go to Europe. He doesn't go uh, to the Pacific Theater. You know where he winds up? Pearl Harbor. And that's where he was stationed. My dad was stationed in Pearl Harbor. My dad, was taken, my dad and one other guy were taken off a transport ship, and they, were, they stayed in Pearl Harbor. Ray Stedman was in Pearl Harbor. And whatever Ray was doing, whatever his post was, he would do his work in the military, and then, and then in his off hours, he met these guys with a ministry called Navigators. And they were all about studying the Bible. And so Ray's studying the Bible like a fish. And, and then he's getting an opportunity to teach, and all of a sudden he's got scores and scores and scores of guys coming to his Bible study. Because you see... The government can script, but your life is in the hands of God. Uh, the war was over, and someone told me about Dallas Seminary. If you really want to teach the Bible, and he said, well, I do, you go to Dallas Seminary. So he did, and because he had been in the war, he got GI benefits, and that's what got him through Dallas Theological Seminary. And the month he graduated was the month the benefits of the GI Bill ran out. See, men have authority, but men have limited authority. We think, um, we think that, uh, by the way, so they posted Ray to Pearl Harbor. Who made that decision? Some, guy, some officer. Some officer that was higher than Ray. 
But see, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, the officer's heart, the CEO's heart, the human resources committee's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Your life, your destiny is not in the hands of any human being or any government. Because God runs human beings, God runs human leaders, and God runs government. Okay. By the way, uh, there's one other thing in verse 8. And evil will not deliver those who practice it. Uh, those who want to live apart from God, those human leaders that live apart from God, that mock God, that uh, mock his laws, that mock his truth, who want to be in authority and make laws for other people, but who seem to skate around the law, should have been in prison many times over, but for some reason they keep running free. Evil will not deliver those who practice it. Yeah, but this person, this person, they never get caught. Not yet. Not yet, but it's coming. We'll see that in a minute. Go to verse 9. He says, all this I have applied, I have seen and applied to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. You know what you've got in verse 9? Governments can abuse their power. Human leaders can abuse their power. EPA officials can abuse their power. Uh, federal judges can abuse their power. Prosecutors can abuse their power. And they do. Some of them, sometimes. Not all of them, but some do. You've seen it, and I've seen it. And sometimes they go after God's people. Sometimes they just do evil, and they don't care who they hurt. That's true. Uh, some human leaders are godly. Most are ungodly. Most governments are ungodly. It is the rare, because it's the nature of man. Every once in a while, you'll see revival and you'll see reform that affects government. But normally, government is not about the things of God. And normally, government is not about the people of God. Here and there, you'll see exceptions, but not normally. Okay, we've got to keep moving. Verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that God judges and holds to account religious and political frauds. I love this verse. I love it. Because, well, let's read the verse. So then I have seen the wicked buried. He's talking here about officials leaders, people in high places, government officials. So I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Notice he's seen the wicked buried, who used to go in and out from the holy place. Uh, this is about religious frauds, and this is about political frauds who play the Christian trump card when it's convenient. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. They're going to die. See, this, this stuff upsets us. This stuff bothers us. Uh, 
I recently heard a, a pastor talk about the fact he's spending time with a particular candidate because this man has sought him out and he's advising him and all of this. And I thought, doesn't he remember that uh, Nixon played Billy Graham? Doesn't he remember that uh, Bill Clinton had three evangelical pastors as accountability partners? Um, so verse 10, I've seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place. Why? Because they wanted to be associated with the things of God, but it was a fraud. It was on their mouth, not in their heart. Verse 11, what we see in verse 11 is that evil unchecked leads to more evil. Back in 1990, see if I can find this. Phil Graham wrote a piece in the New York Times. And in that piece, he made, I'll give you some quotes from what he wrote in 1990 in the New York Times about crime. A person committing murder can expect in the United States of America to spend 1.8 years in prison. A person committing rape can expect 60 days. A person committing robbery will serve an average prison time of 23 days. A person convicted of arson can expect 6.7 days. A person committing aggravated assault averages 6.4 days. A person stealing a car can reasonably expect to spend a day and a half in jail. What does uh, verse 11 says? Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. See, the further away you get from God, the further away you get from justice. Okay. Verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, and does that not frustrate you? Although a sinner does evil a hundred times, how come these people get away with all this? I mean, they're getting away with murder. Every time I turn around, they're getting away. That's their whole history. That's their whole political career. They've just gotten away with murder. Now, now watch this, watch this. This is all under the sovereignty of God who runs political leaders and governments and administrations. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, watch this, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. Fear him openly. And I, I read something in Gene Veith's uh, column the other day of the Muslim people that have gone to Denmark Denmark's a secular, um, it, it's a, it, it's, there aren't many Christians in Denmark anymore. But Muslim people, families who've had to flee for their lives are finding Christ in some of these European cities and it's starting to have an impact on, on the natural citizens. Um, they had, they opened a Bible study in a shelter and 12 people came, the next time 40 came and now they're in the hundreds. 
And they're told, if we, if we accept Jesus and are baptized, do we have to go back to our nation? No. But one of the pastors said, you might have to go back to your nation, so we would suggest that you not be baptized. They say, no, we want to be baptized. Even when we go back. And they know that's death. They've already made up their mind. Uh, some of these people have actually had dreams. Now, you've got to be careful of dreams. But in Acts, you have people who had dreams, and they, as a result of the dream, they would go to someone who could teach them the Bible. And that's what's happening over there. It's fascinating. Now, 14, and, I, and I've got to move here, guys. Forgive me. Um, I've got to move here. Let, let's, to wrap this up. Verse 13. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. The evil man may appear to get away with certain things for a period of time, but he cannot lengthen his days and he cannot avoid death and he will meet the living God. And there will be an account and there will be justice. So don't get too worked up that you're not seeing justice right now. Verse 14, here's something else that bothers us. There's futility which is done on the earth that there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens um, or whom it strikes according to the deeds of the righteous. In, in other words, here's what he talked about before. Uh, I, I see that the righteous suffer from the evil and that the evil get a free ride and are prosperous and everything goes their way. It's the Psalm 73 concept. You see? And what can happen is you see this and this can be so unsettling. God, why are you allowing this? God, this is not right. Why do these people get away scot-free? They, they profane your name, they lie, they cheat, they steal, they murder, they do all kinds of stuff, and they get off scot-free. Yet I see righteous people just, just, I mean, losing their businesses for standing on conscience. This is not right. And, and we can get all twisted up in knots over this. And then he immediately goes to verse 15. So I commend pleasure, or literally I commend joy, in the midst of all of this stuff that, does, that is a disconnect, he starts talking about joy. Well, wait a minute. If the righteous suffer and the evil get off, what am I supposed to do? Well, look at this. So I commended joy or, 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 or pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will spot, stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. In other words, the fact that the righteous suffer and the evil prosper, you're never going to figure that out unless you think about their end. That's Psalm 73. If you try to figure out, God, I don't understand why you're doing this. Lord, I don't get this. And Lord, I don't see what you're up to, and I don't understand your purpose. You put the wicked up over your people. and you. If you get all tied in knots about wanting an explanation from God and you're not getting it, you can lose your faith on this stuff. You can get bitter. Uh, so what you do is you take a step back because this stuff is a mystery God's knowable but he's incomprehensible my ways are not your ways 
So this stuff is mysterious. And so the point of 14, I think, is this. Don't let the mysteries rob you of your joy. You see? Don't let the mysteries that you can't answer rob you of your joy. Just know this. There will be a judgment, and God will be just. Sometimes God immediately judges sin. Most of the time, he's patient and long-suffering. Hasn't he been patient and long-suffering with you? God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. You know, every once in a while, some of these people come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, we don't believe they've come to Christ, like Chuck Colson, like the Apostle Paul. So don't let this rob you of your joy. Verses 16 and 17 basically say this. We cannot comprehend the mysterious ways of God. So don't weary yourself with what you can't comprehend. Just trust him. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day and night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man, now watch this, cannot discover the work of God which has been done under the sun. You're not going to get everything God's doing. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. So that takes me back to 15. So I come in to joy, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, to drink, and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given under the sun. We said it earlier in the study, because God gives you the, pro the gift of prosperity, that doesn't mean he's given you the, the gift of joy to enjoy the prosperity. They're two different things. So, Last night, we had elections, and uh, I watched Shark Tank. <laughs> That's what I did. Earlier in the day, I'd, I'd studied in the morning, the afternoon, I couldn't study anymore. Uh, John came over, brought my grandson. We horsed around, played ball, did our little things. That was fun. You know, ate some burgers. It was good. It was a good day. But, man, there was some, but I met with a guy yesterday at lunch who was absolutely in knots over last night. And he's a solid guy. He was in knots. He said, we ought to be fasting and praying. So I'm not fasting. <laughs> I'm hungry. I mean, if you want to, that's fine. I'm not. I'm not. And then I watched, I watched some reruns of Shark Tank. Every once in a while, I'd flip over to see what was going on, but not much. Didn't listen to the commentators. I, why? What do they know? Just a bunch of talking heads who are well paid. You see? What do they know? They don't know. They don't know anything. I know this. It's every day it gets more crazy, and I know this. Oh, there might there might be a brokered convention there. And whatever occurs, he's ordained. He's ordained. So I'm going to play ball with my grandson, eat some cheeseburgers and watch Shark Tank <laughs> and enjoy life. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Let's pray. So Father, we're all in the Shark Tank. But you own the sharks and you run the sharks. And our life is in your hands. And the life of our kids and our grandkids. You're running this show. You're just running the show. Help us to discipline our thoughts, 
not to plumb the mysteries that we'll never understand on this earth. One day you'll, you'll reveal it to us, but not now. So in the interim, help us to trust. Help us to be thankful. Help us to stay close to you. Help us not to give in to temptation to live like the unrighteous. And when we fall, we confess immediately our sins and are forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. We want to walk with you. We want to be Daniels. We want to be Nehemiahs. We want to be Mordecais. Because we're living in times like they lived in. You got them through. You'll get us through. In Jesus' name, amen.